Thank you for joining us today. This is Clint Byers, lead pastor of Forward Church. I pray this message blesses and encourages you. I hope it inspires transformative grace in your heart and establishes you even deeper in your new covenant identity in Christ. Now take a deep breath, become aware of God's spirit within you, and enjoy the message. So this is number four in Know Your Enemy. You guys enjoying this series? It's, uh, it's, it's, if this is your first time watching or first time with us on a Sunday, you came at an interesting time because we're, we're in a series that's it's a little weird. I'll just say it. It's a little weird. There's some weird topics, uh, you know, talking about giants and Nephilim and fallen angels and all this kind of stuff. But it's important to know because really... Everything that we believe should be shaped by how God sees it. And we know how God sees things through his spirit, who Jesus said once he gives us his spirit, we'll know things, you know, that, that when he told his disciples, listen, I've got things for you to, that I need to teach you, but you can't receive them now. But when my spirit comes, he'll teach you. Now, I don't mean we add to the Bible or just make stuff up because the Spirit will always confirm the written Word. Amen? The, the Holy Spirit, more than anything, what He's doing in your life right now is He's testifying of what Jesus has already done for you. The Spirit of God moving through you will always testify of Jesus. Always point you to the truth, which the truth is revealed in the written Word. So what the Spirit will do is help that written Word become alive to you. You know, you ever read the Bible and it's like, it just, it just feels like you're being fed, you know, it just, it just kind of comes alive. And then sometimes you have those stages in life where you read it and you're just like, eh, I knew that, I already knew that. And it becomes about knowledge or information rather than this communion with the wisdom and the logic of God, you know. It's just that spiritual element of communing with the Word of God that gets down in there. And, and, and it's like there's more going on than just you reading some information, right? You're, you're really nourishing you're being nourished by the spirit of the living God within you. His word literally is living and alive because he is his word. You know, the, 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 word, the Greek word for word in the beginning was the word is the Greek word logos. And logos is not just written word. The logos has a bigger meaning behind that. You could take it from even, the, even a Greek concept or an Eastern concept. The, the idea of logos is the logic behind the speaker of the word or the character behind the person who has written or spoken that word. So logos is like the way of the character, the way of the person who's spoken that word. Old school, you'd have a handshake, right? My bond is my word and my word is my bond. And you'd have handshakes based on that person's word. You know what I'm talking about? And the word was as good as that person's reputation or character. And that person's reputation or character was built upon who that person actually is. Their track record, how they treat people, whether or not they keep their promises. God keeps his promises. The logos is the representation of the character and truth of who God is. And that became flesh and dwelt among us. The character of God, the justice of God, the love of God, who God is, the way that he thinks, how he does things, God's ways, 
God's logic became human, and we saw him in Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, first and foremost, look at Jesus. Then go look at everything else. Properly understand who Jesus is and what he did, then look at everything else. Amen? Like, it kind of sounds like a no-brainer. Oh, yeah, it's all about Jesus. Well, is it really? Because a lot of people still have one foot in the old covenant in their thinking and in their mind, and one foot in the new. In other words, yes, salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. However, the Spirit is still coming down and anointing people and then lifting if He's disappointed in you. There's still curses in the land. There's still, you know, you still have to tithe to get God to bless you. And if you don't tithe, He's not going to bless you and all these legalistic things, right? Now, I'm not saying don't tithe. <laughs> uh, you know, but realize you're not under a curse if you don't. Amen? And if you don't, don't feel guilty. Amen? Just don't feel guilty. Why? Because you are not required legalistically to tithe. Now, what I think God wants us to do under the new covenant is recognize that we're free, but be liberal in our generosity. And where your heart is, there's your money. Where your treasure is, there your heart is. So you find out what is my heart value based on your budget. So money is actually a way to leverage your being, your interior man, your inner man, your heart, to focus and trust God. I didn't, I'm not plan, I didn't plan on that part, but it just felt like it needed to be said. Amen? Because what I want to do is shape everything that we believe about the world and biblical knowledge through the finished work of Christ. Everything we believe about God must be filtered through Jesus. Everything that we know and trust and expect about God must be affected by what he accomplished in his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and then the cleansing work within you and his inhabitation within you. Everything must be understood in light of what did he do. Now, there, I believe that... I'm going to push pause for just a second. I see some people fanning. We, we had some... We, we have a weird kind of issue in this building that sometimes the the septic gets backed up a little bit. That doesn't really get backed up, but we get some smells. So if you smell something like your neighbor had some beans last night or something, <laughs> it could just be our system is, you know, doing its thing. So it's not, you're not smelling demons. <laughs> and you don't have to get mad at your neighbor. We just had a little bit of an issue this morning. So we had everything cranked and we didn't get the temperature balanced yet. You good? Everybody good? All right, let me jump back in. Because <laughs> uh, I'm a little warm, too. Everybody good? Feels a little warm. All right. So that's what we want to do. We're, so I, I believe that there is a gospel awakening. You know, I don't even want to necessarily call it a grace awakening. It's not the grace message. Grace is a factor. We want to have a good, healthy balance of grace and faith. You know, when I talk about the focus of what this church really focuses on theologically. To me, it's more so a new covenant focus, you know, like the language that I, that makes sense to me, it's more of a finished work perspective than it is a particular aspect of salvation. Are you with me? And, and part of that is the operation and the functioning of the gifts. Somehow Glenn got locked out back there. Glenn just tried to get in and 
There we go. Glenn, we love you. I'll preach here in a second. Um, so, so I believe this gospel awakening, we're saying, there he is. Hey, we love you. We weren't trying to keep you out of the building over there. <laughs> so I, I, her too. Oh, there we go. Sorry. I know. We'll wait. Um, so this gospel awakening that I feel like is sweeping the land has primarily, these are some thoughts that I've had in the last couple of months of thinking about, you know, just thinking about the future of this church and the kingdom and just what it all looks like and, and how to participate with what God is doing in the earth, you know, because he is active. He, he didn't just finish the work in Christ and sit down and he's waiting. You know, God, God is active. The spirit of the living God is in your life. There are angels moving about in your life, doing things, leading you and guiding you. We are to participate with what God wants to see happen in the earth. You know, It just happens to be the battle's already won. The victory is in Christ. The kingdom has been brought here. The kingdom is increasing. There's still an enemy in the earth. There's still an enemy in the land. And we now have the power. We have all the power because Christ is in us. And so what we are to do is go throughout our lives, the earth, announcing the victory of the kingdom, operating in the power that we have as kingdom representatives. Amen? Not sitting there adopting the same mindsets that the world has, looking at, well, maybe there are too many people on the planet. Maybe it will be a good, maybe it actually would be a good idea to have all these taxes to because humans are bad for the planet and we're destroying this and we're destroying that and maybe we do need to regulate and tighten and this because it's you know there's death in the land and, and you know that is a, that is a carnal fatalistic mindset that the enemy loves to piggyback on and sh shape even how Christians respond to the world like it it makes perfect sense to me that most people on this planet look at the state of humanity the condition of the planet and come to negative conclusions because they have a death filter. They have an entropic filter. The scientific mindset expects everything to deteriorate. Everything is exhausting, running out. The supply is running out. But God has a restorative mindset. God has a creative restoration of all things mindset. Amen? The kingdom is increasing. Now, Jesus did address, yes, the parable of the wheat and the tares. They're like, well, why is there, if the kingdom is here, then why is there still weeds in the earth? And he says, well, the enemy planted some, but my father's going to take care of that. You don't worry about that. You just nourish the wheat. It's 1 Corinthians 15, what the Holy Spirit and the angels are doing and the Spirit of God are moving through the earth, removing the enemies out of the earth, it says. Go read it, 1 Corinthians 15. That's now. I'm throwing a lot at you, aren't I? But I'm, I'm setting it up because everything... Oh, let me finish that thought. So I think that this gospel awakening has primarily been a teaching awakening, teaching the tenets of the new covenant, teaching theology as, it, as, as it's understood in what Christ did, you know, teaching identity, who we are in Him as a result, teaching authority... And I think now we're going to start to see this gospel, this finished work mindset, start to transition into areas of life that are, that are practical and even, you know, the different aspects of Christianity. 
Are you with me? So like it's primarily been teaching to get people to realize that Jesus actually put us under a new covenant. And, and, that, and Paul addressed it. Paul constantly was bombarded with people saying, legalists saying to him, well, it sounds like you're saying that we should just continue in sin. He's like, what? No, no. Don't you know that you died to sin and you're set free in Christ and you're no longer cursed and the Spirit of God is in you? leading and guiding you, that, that grace will teach you holiness? I mean, it's not a death mind. It's not a focus on behavior and sin. Realize sin has been dealt with, but you still shouldn't do it. it it'll kill you. Are you with me? So I think we're going to see this gospel awakening start to creep into areas like people teaching on what does finished work perspective look like in terms of... Uh, you know, marriage, relationships, business, government. I don't fully know what that looks like, but I think that that's going to start happening because the church for a long time did a really good job of bringing Christian principles into culture and into life. We've lost a little bit of ground, but I think this gospel awakening will start to change something. I'm, I'm hopeful. Does that mean everything's going to be peaches and rainbow and the kingdom of heaven is going to eradicate everything like that tomorrow? Well, if God had his way, the spirit of God, the kingdom would advance and we would step into representing him in such a way we would eradicate the enemy out of this earth. But the enemy still has a foothold in the minds and the hearts of the people and that's what the battle's for. That's why we do this. Knowing who we are, moving toward the world to help people understand who God is and what Jesus did so that they live under grace and not law. Man, I'm going through a lot right now. I know. But we're setting the stage. So, so today I want to bring the finished work mindset into a specific area. We've been talking about the enemy, right? We've been talking about where did demons come from. If, if, you're, if you're new today or this is your first time watching, I'll give you just a little bit of review. We've been talking about this idea of what fallen angels and the Nephilim were. The Nephilim are referenced in Genesis uh, as a result of the fallen angels coming to earth, mating with women, and their offspring being giants, otherwise known as Nephilim. So when you think of giant in the Bible, what's the first thing you think of? Goliath. So everybody knows there were giants. Because when you start talking about this, it's like, wait, no, whoa, 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 wait a minute. It's just that before the flood, it was a lot different. They were, something happened after the, a lot of people have asked, well, they were still after the flood. It says in Genesis 3, uh, Genesis 6, and they were in the, there were giants in the land before the flood and after. So there was either another fall. Some people will teach that one of um, Noah's daughter-in-laws carried the gene and it perpetuated it. I don't think so. I personally think there was another spiritual fall of these beings. But we looked at the book of Enoch, uh, not as to put it on par with the Bible. You know, to me, quoting the book of Enoch is kind of like quoting another history book, right? It's just there's information in there that is an accurate historical record. It's not canon. I don't think that it was left out by accident. We don't have a complete Bible. I think that what we have is what God wanted us to have. Amen. However, I think it is a book that does have an accurate historical record 
because m much of it exactly mirrors Scripture, and it gives a little bit more insight that, uh, that, it, that is consistent with Scripture. So we look at these cultures all over the planet, ancient, ancient cultures that talked about that they had ancient gods and kings. A lot of them are depicted as giants. I'm not going to show the pictures this week. We looked at Sumerian culture, Babylonian culture, Egyptian culture. All of those cultures have reliefs and drawings of giants in their culture. Those giants were most likely the offspring of the fallen angels, and they set themselves up as gods and kings all over the planet. Go do your research and look at it. You can also go back and listen to these messages. I've gone into great detail. Now, what we learned from Enoch is that, the, that when those giants died in the flood and thereafter, that their spirits are what the demons are now. Some people are vehement that no demons are fallen angels. Well, I, I'm, I'm really not trying to argue with you. I'm not trying to be right on that point. If that's what you believe, you're free to believe that. But we, the, my point in making the, the distinction that demons now are the disembodied spirits of those giants, every time I talk about this, I'm like, what are, what, that is just such, it's such a weird thing, isn't it? But, but it's like, it's there, it's in scripture and we need to understand it, we need to talk about it. And I think the importance of making the distinction is because when you look at ancient culture, Greek mythology, uh, Sumerian mythology, even in Eastern Indian and Vedic culture and, and, and Asian, Chinese, Japanese culture, you see these ancient gods and kings that were giants that they say, many of them record the exact same story, that these beings, these ascended beings, these masters, these gods, now people might even call them aliens, came down from the heavens, taught mankind how to do all these different kinds of things. That's where we learned culture from. And those gods seeded us and helped us progress as a, as a, as a species and then ascended back again, but they're going to come back one day. That, that, that's the scenario that we hear. And in the earth, it's accepted as if, well, they were just aliens back. They were aliens, but back then they didn't know what they were. So how could we be alone? But the biblical narrative is, no, they were spiritual beings that left the abode that God created them to dwell in. The reason to make the distinction of the Nephilim is because when you, when you tie it together of the existence of those creatures in the earth... They always sought to dominate mankind. They always sought to rule over mankind and make mankind subjective to them. It wasn't like they tried to set themselves up as benevolent gods and kings, right? Like, like, like if the enemy were smarter, he probably would have made himself the nice guy and done good things for humanity rather than enslave them, brutalize them, sacrifice their children, and eat them. Like, that's a bad plan. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it kind of immediately identifies you as the bad guy. Right? So that is what those giants were doing. And you see it all throughout ancient culture. They're still trying to do that today, but they're in spirit form now. They're still trying to rule and reign over man. They're still trying to pervert mankind. They're still trying to get within our DNA and mingle within us. I don't know how, but it, that's what they were doing. That was the purpose of the flood, was to wipe out all of that corrupt species that had been generated because of giants mingling with humans. We're not talking about a movie. 
We're talking about what Scripture talks about. Amen? So, because we have an enemy still in the earth, a demonic presence, we need to know how to work with that. Now, most of the Christian church that, has, that, that acknowledges the presence of them and acknowledges that, you know, that we do wrestle, that there is a struggle, that, that, that they, do, they are out there with plans and strategies and they try to attack. Um, you know, I may share my story in part of this, but I was possessed. I know they're real. I came to the knowledge of Christ through a botched effort of demonic attack in my life. It backfired on them. And now look. <laughs> they're like, whoops. But, that, but that's what they, like, like Jesus that says that they, if they'd have known, they wouldn't have crucified him. Bunch of dummies. That, that Fred Sanford, anybody grew up on Fred Sanford? You big dummy. Like dummy to me. Anyway, let's just keep going. I, I get in trouble when I use words in place of other words. I made a post on, I'm not going to go there. If you saw that. It's like it's interesting that, let me just keep going. Whew. So, so, this, so this idea of spiritual warfare is usually only present in a more charismatic expression of Christianity. And, and, and so you see a lot of stuff within Christians um, that really still have an old covenant mindset of the demonic and an old covenant mindset of how to petition God to do something about the enemy in the land because we don't know the authority that we have in Christ as finished work, new covenant creatures, beings, new creations in him. Amen? So that's another area that we need to bring into the finished work of Christ is what does, what do the gifts look like in regard to the enemy in the earth, the enemy in our lives, the enemy in culture and the enemy in other people's lives. You know, I'm going to just keep going in this series because there's just so much, you know, I feel like I scratched the surface and there was a lot of itching there that needed to happen. So we're just going to go there. Next week, I'll talk a little bit more practical of mind renewal in terms of, you know, how to have peace in your heart and your mind, even when there's an attack happening. So very, very practical. We're going to go next week, but, but, I, I want to filter what does is, what is some of these things look like now in terms of the finished work. Last week, um, we ended on the idea, or two weeks ago, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Talking about spiritual warfare. So what is pulling down strongholds? What kind of warfare do we do? We cast down arguments or vain imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought, say thought, captive to the obedience of Christ. This is how you engage in spiritual warfare. You bring your thoughts captive. Why? Because what you believe, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. The kinds of thoughts that you have will determine what your heart allows. And if your heart is receptive to the lies and the deceptions and the fiery darts of the enemy, your heart will then open and you will move in that direction and you will manifest or create into this earth 
what that enemy is trying to seed into your life. The enemy doesn't have the power to just make things happen. They got to get you in harmony, practically hypnotize you, and then the manifestations and the things that you experience are actually expressions of your own authority and your capacity, not the demon doing something to you. It's hypnotic. You ever watch those comedian hypnotists and they make people think that their foot's getting hot or that their shoe is a telephone and they answer their telephone? It's not real, but yet they think that it's real. A little bit more into that next week. Uh, so we talked about putting on the armor of God. How do you do battle? How do you war against demons? How do you engage in spiritual warfare? Submit to God, resist the devil, and then what? He's like, well, this ain't working. I'm tired. I'm going somewhere else. This is pretty much what happens. And you, how do you stand? How do you do that? You know your identity and authority in Christ. This is a super quick review. And we are always constantly engaged in put off, put on. Put off the old, put on the new. Put off the old understanding of demons from an old covenant perspective. Put on the new understanding of who you are in him and how to process through life if that's an issue for you. I personally think you can get to a place where you are so convinced of who you are in Christ and you're so expectant of the promises of God and your identity being the dominant force in your life that you just don't even entertain any deception that comes your way. Now, they might try, but you can, get, you can be like Jesus. And he says, the enemy comes and he has nothing in me. I, I see you, devil. I see you messing around here. I see you, trying to, I see you trying to reinforce the lie that's in that person that's in my life. And I see the conflict that might be coming about it. I'm not going to run away scared thinking, oh, my goodness, we need a deliverance or inner healing session. I'm going to reinforce to this person, no, just put on who you are in Christ. Let me just reaffirm to you that you're loved, you're accepted. I might, I might you know, if, I, if, if I'm led by the Spirit, I might tell that thing to go because that's how Jesus engaged in deliverance ministry, go. Not, what's your name? When he said, what's your name to the guy at the cave, he wasn't speaking to the demon, he was speaking to the person, trying to get to connect to that person. But that person had been yielded so much that they let the demon speak. I'm going into a lot. Stay on, say, stay on track. All right. So then last week we talked about doctrinism, demons, the idea of doctrine of Luciferianism. Luciferianism is rooted in this idea here, Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God made. And he said to the woman, did God really say? That is the number one strategy of the enemy is to get you to question the Word of God. Absolute number one strategy. When he came to Jesus, he got Jesus, he tried to get Jesus to question what God had said about him. So he'll attack the Word of God and try to pervert it. Remember we looked at Eve, Eve, when she said back to the serpent what God had said, she added to it. The enemy asked a question that is not what God actually said. Remember, God said, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But the enemy said, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So if you don't know the word, his strategy to you will instantly have you off base and then move forward from there. If, he, if you don't know the word, he's got you right off the bat. 
it'll lead you astray instantly with a single question that's just a little bit off truth. That's his strength. Know the word, I'm telling you. Know the word. It is your number one strategy against the trickery of the enemy. Know the word. Know who you are in him. Amen? You getting something out of this? Am I going too fast? Good? All right. Did God really say? That's the question. So then last week I went into this idea of a few specific areas. Did God really say that Jesus is your complete and sufficient salvation? Did God really say that by his stripes you are healed? Did, you know what I'm saying? So like, did God really say all these things that we can experience? If you don't know what God said, you'll be led astray. And if you doubt God's goodness, you'll question his character and intentions. The enemy planted a seed in the earth that's still in the earth today. One of those areas is in this idea of generational curses and familiar spirits. How many of you have ever been in an environment where you dealt with, quote, unquote, generational curses? Hold your, hold your hand up. Yeah, okay, a lot, a lot of you, okay. I might offend you today. And it, but I'm going to do it with the word, and I'm not trying to offend you. I, I just want to, again, remember, what we're doing is we're contextualizing every belief that we have through the finished work of Christ. Every belief that you have about God, the world, and anything, whether spirit, carnal, physical, whatever, every belief that you have must be contextualized biblically, and specifically biblically <laughs> through the new covenant, all right? In other words, what did Jesus accomplish? What did he actually do in his death, burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, and in the new creation identity that we have now? How does all of that affect everything that I believe? And it must affect the area of generational curses. Now, let's, let's just keep going here. I see generational curses and familiar spirits tied together. So to kind of frame this of how to have this conversation, I want to go back and look at the Israelites, the early, you know, the Hebrews, and talk about them because that is where we actually get the definition of what a generational curse is. And I've got good news for you. It's probably not what you expected, and it's not what you see a lot in charismatic Christianity today. And I consider myself a charismatic you know, I'm not trying to attack charismatic church. I'm just saying we need to filter everything through the finished work. The Hebrews were ungoverned and wild. It even says that. Like, like I want to encourage you this week to go read Exodus and, and at least read Exodus 20 through 32 for a little bit more deeper insight in what God was dealing with and why he instituted some of the things that he instituted. All right, so I'm not going to go through all of that, but it literally says that when Moses was up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights with God and God was dictating to him, you know, personal injury laws and governmental structural laws and personal property laws, I mean, all these, all these laws for them to shape their culture on, it says that Aaron let the people run wild. Aaron, Moses' brother was kind of in charge while Moses was up talking to God, and it says he let him run wild. I mean, you got to think, these are, this is a culture and civilization. It's they, so three months, they'd only been out of slavery for three months. For 430 years, they were treated as animals. 
they were packed away in these camps, you know, and, and they just kind of had to fend for themselves. There was probably no real governmental structure for them at the time. You know, it's, it's, you, gotta, you get a bunch of wild people that have not been given the opportunity to really structure themselves. Now, I think that they, you know, they were still God's people, so they probably had some struggle. But there's a reason he had to say, don't be sleeping with your mom. Don't be killing your kids. Don't be doing all these other things that these, ancient, that these cultures do that are perverted. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's a reason he actually had to say those things because these people were just kind of living wild. And, and they went, and it's evidence in the desert. I'm not trying to attack the Hebrews and Israels. I'm just saying... This is why God did some of these things and, and was so strict with them because they were the people through which he would bring the Messiah into the earth and he needed them to be preserved, right? And so he had to be heavy-handed with them legalistically to keep them from killing themselves off and becoming another perverted culture that didn't make way for the Messiah to come into the earth. So a couple of passages just, just, just the idea I want to grasp out of these, not the historical aspect of where this is in Scripture, but the ideas of what God was dealing with when he engaged the Israelites and the Hebrews of why he did some of the things that he did, which we're about to talk about. So Isaiah 19, 3, And the spirit of Egypt shall fail in the midst thereof, and I will destroy the counsel thereof, and they shall seek to the idols and to the charmers and to them that have familiar spirits, and to the wizards. Now, idols. Keep that in mind. A couple more passages here. Second Chronicles 33.6. This was the mindset. This is what God was dealing with. This is what his people were into that he had to correct. And we'll get even more understanding. So, and he burned his sons. Now, this is talking about child sacrifice that was prevalent back then. And so we see a lot of this, the celebration of the slaughter of innocent children in the womb today, that is a doctrine of demons. I'm not trying to say that any particular party is bad and the other one is good. Even a two-party system is demonic in nature because it tries to create an instant us versus them. You know what I'm saying? However, to go after innocent babies is demonic. It just is. Again, I'm not trying to make a political statement, but where did that idea come from all right, let me keep going. Uh, an offering in the valley <clears throat> of the son of Hinnom and used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and necromancers. How did he did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger? So we're talking about one of these ancient kings, right? And so then, again, so necromancy is communing with the dead, or is it? I think it's communing with evil spirits or, or familiar spirits. I mean... Keep going. Deuteronomy 18, 9, when you come into the land, so this is God, now we're talking to Moses, now we're talking to the Hebrews, the children of Israel. This is how you're going to structure yourself. You're going to prepare yourself so that I may dwell among you is what God wanted. That's what God told Moses. Go get them. Go rescue them out of slavery. Go rescue them out of darkness so that I can dwell among my people and lead them and shape them into a holy nation of priests that will be a blessing across all the nations of the earth so that I can reveal myself and my kindness and my mercy and my desire to live with humans and be, you know, that, that's what God wanted to do through them. So, you know, he had some more, he had his work cut out for him. Uh, so when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominations of those nations. What nations? 
the nations that have been shaped by those Nephilim, corrupt, evil beings that had taught mankind all of those things that we read about you know, a few weeks ago, taught mankind sorcery and cosmology, root cutting, certain types of governmental structure, makeup. I, I hesitate to say that one because I'm not trying to be condemning, but it, it can be improperly used, you know. So anything to get mankind more carnal, not saying don't use makeup and you're inviting demons if you use makeup, just relax. What's the heart behind it, okay? Are you with me? You know, nothing in and of itself is evil. It's the heart that determines the issue, right? Uh, so there shall, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire or one who practices witchcraft or a soothsayer, one who interprets omens or one who interprets dreams. Let me just say, now dream interpretation can be a godly thing, but I think a lot of what we see is not godly. It's, it's carnal. It's, it may not necessarily be demonic, but it's just our own rationale and thinking sometimes. Uh, or, sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls upon the dead. Now, did anybody see that video I posted in our Facebook group this week? One of our ex-presidents was speaking, and he was speaking about his wife that she had heard from dead Eleanor Roosevelt. And he delivered a message that his wife had gotten from apparently a seance that she had been in from the dead Eleanor Roosevelt. And I hesitate to say any names just because, just because. <laughs> and so what you're dealing with is this idea of familiar spirits. Familiar spirits, the, the Hebrew word is ob, and the definition is very simply ghost or spirit of a dead one. Or, and the root word is ab or ancestor. Now, in Kenya and a lot of places in Africa and, and probably far, I'm less familiar with Far Eastern cultures, but a lot of places in Africa, they deal with uh, ancestral worship. You ever heard of that, ancestral worship? Is that something that's in the East? Yeah. So, in fact, um, Pastor uh, John Sinet, who may be watching, but, you know, John... In, in Kenya is one of the pastors that we work with and we bought him all the equipment to display the Jesus film in the, the particular tribal language that he's going into. And, and he, so he sent me a message two days ago. I think this, maybe even yesterday, he uh, went and went into this area. And I'm telling you, he's going into areas that are unreached. Many of these people have never heard about Christ. And if they have, they've never really heard about the, the truth of who he is. He, but, but every time John goes into one of these areas, he always asks for prayer because they believe in ancestral worship. And he's concerned about that. And the reason he's concerned about that is because their religion is the worship of demons. Familiar spirits, this is the definition of what a familiar spirit would be. A familiar spirit is a spirit that knows your lineage, knows your bloodline, has been involved in maybe one of your ancestors before, that person died, they're going to look for somewhere else to go. Familiar spirits tend to stick to specific bloodlines. And, and, and they're tricked. They're, they, they, they're masters. They're deceivers. You know, I, I, I've had this thought before that like if a demon were benevolent, they would make an excellent counselor or psychologist because they've had thousands of years of 
observing humans. They know how we think. They know, they just under, they, they, they know how to manipulate. It's so important that you reshape your identity of who you are in Christ, not the trauma of your past, not your failures, not well, how much money you make in this earth, because those are all carnal, dead man associations of identity that if you still feel about yourself the way that that stuff defines you in the past, rather than shaping everything that you believe about yourself through the finished work of Christ and who you now are in Him, regardless of behavior, you're susceptible to these maybe even generational lies that have been perpetrated in your family. Now, we'll talk about the difference between curses in here in just a minute. But that's how you go. Uh, don't raise your hand. Please don't raise your hand. But have you ever been to a medium or called a psychic hotline? Those were big in the 80s. So you remember, how, you remember psychic hotlines? You can, you can raise your hand on that one. Yeah. That doesn't admit that you called one. But they would tell you things, and they would know things. And this is how cults work. They, they, they have psychological plans and methods that do bring about some kind of benefit in your life and help you, but then they lower the boom with, you know, so, so like uh, uh, the Dianetics one, Ron Hubbard, the guy, what's the, yeah, but what's the name of it? Oh, Scientology. Scientology has these methods and programs that you can plug into, and they supposedly will help you deal with issues of the past, become more confident in who you are. So there's this trick that they have with some of these uh, uh, classes and courses, and then they lower the boom with, you know, getting in your pocket for money, and that you were really what it is is that the god Zenu banished all these creatures, statins here years ago, millions of years ago, and they're trapped by these volcanoes, and you've become inhabited by them, and so you need to go through these audits and release these statins from the earth because, after all, they're benevolent creatures, but yet on you, they're not good for you. So you need to stay in our program that we get you thetan free. Yeah. I mean, really. I had the same reaction. You're like... Maybe I read too much about that stuff. I don't know. It's just... <clears throat> so, a familiar spirit can, be, can trick you because they may know things about your life. You go, you start messing around with those areas of life. You talk to those people. Humans are hardwired, lost or saved, to perceive spiritual dimensions. Humans are created in such a way to interact with unseen spiritual dimensions where those beings exist. Uh, you hear people talk about that are, that are I mean, you know, so uh, Paul on the road to Damascus saw Jesus. You're hearing about these deep Islamic cultural states and, and they'll have these encounters with Christ and he'll say, go find a Bible or go find this person and that person's ready to receive. You know, so humans can interact with spirit. We, we can, we, we're, we're programmed to be able to interact. And we're constantly receiving messages from spiritual things happening around us. Now, don't be afraid of that. Just understand that you, if you've said yes to Christ, you have the Spirit of God in you, the Spirit of truth in you, constantly broadcasting the truth to you. That is why it's important to stay in church, read the Word so that your mind is renewed, you're in agreement with what's in the written Word, and it gets in your heart and in your being to the degree that you 
at an other than conscious level, when you have to do life, the word is in there and it becomes to you what you need in that moment without you even have to think thinking about it, right? You just naturally flow into how God would lead you because the, the logic of God is within you. It's your reality. It's how you think. You've renewed your mind to God's logic, His word, His ways. And it will lead you. It will, it will be a path for you. However, the areas where you question God, you're offended at God, and we get offended at God when we look in the Word and we see something that's ours in covenant, but we look in our lives and it's not there. Man, I'm telling you, I'm sitting on this one for a minute because I know some people need to hear this. We become offended at God when we look in the Word and we see, I see that this should be mine. And we, we, we look in our lives, it's not there. And because of this lie, the lie being God's in control of everything, like everything that happens, He predetermined, and nothing happens without Him letting it happen. Well, He gave this earth to us. Some of us are offended at God because we look in the Word and we see something, but we don't see it in our lives. And then, then we entertain the question, did God really say, does God really have your best interest? Maybe God's withholding from you for some reason that's weird. Maybe you should be making these kinds of decisions. Maybe your thinking and your logic is the way that you should live because God's holding out from you, holding back from you. Did God really say? I mean, honestly, ask yourself, am I entertaining that question in any area? Why was he so concerned about idols? You know, idolatry is not really the worshiping of these wooden little creatures, wooden little carvings or rocks. Idolatry is this. Idolatry is the worship of false gods. And who are those false gods? They're not wooden statues. They're the spirits of the Nephilim who tried to rule mankind, who tried to destroy mankind. Remember that the Nephilim set themselves up as gods over man in antiquity. They still desire to be worshipped in their current form. What does this whole spiritist thing look like? I'm getting the generational curses. These messages just go long, and, and that's just how it is. There's just a lot to get through. But So let's say modern time, even in New Testament times, we still might see this kind of thing happening. This is Paul dealing with this in Acts 16. This is 16 through 18. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us crying. There, there are very high, powerful elites in the earth that consult psychics and mediums because they do know things. It's demonic, but it happens. Did y'all know that? Like, not, not all rich people, but there are certain groups of elites in the earth that do engage in this kind of stuff. And they do get information that causes them to make decisions to be more successful financially. That, that's still happening in the earth. Now, you don't need to be scared of that. Man, that's all. I just opened up a can of worms on that one. Got to figure out how to address that more. But anyway, these, men's, th these, these men, so this is what this spiritist, this fortune teller was saying, this woman, 
These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, did she say the truth? Yes. Interesting, right? She didn't just attack, but she got annoying about it. Something, you know, you just discern the spirit here. It's like, I don't know. I, th I think there's a lot of mystical expressions we see in church that are not always godly. There is another can right there. Uh, next week, I'm telling you, we're talking about discerning of spirits next week, just bear, you know, getting practical. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having, a, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And what did it do? It came out that very hour. Go. All right, generational curses. What is a generational curse? How many of you have believed or been taught? Let me ask you this question. Can a family be cursed because the men in their ancestry were Freemasons? Do you believe it? Yes. That's, that's a good answer. How many have heard that? Okay. Can abuse, alcoholism, anger, or any other sin pattern be due to a generational curse? I'll just tell you, no, on both of those questions. Why? Let me show you. We're going to define what a generational curse actually is. Who came up with it? What empowered it? And now how to see it through the finished work. Amen? Remember, we're going to contextualize everything through what Jesus did. Exodus 20, this is God speaking. And God spoke all these words. This is, this is where we get the Ten Commandments. Uh, if you're ever wondering where's the Ten Commandments in the Bible, Exodus 20. Exodus, because that's when the, the Hebrews left Egypt, and we know that God gave the Ten Commandments and really the 630-something laws to the Israelites in that desert. In my mind, I think, well, there were Ten Commandments. Ten times two is 20. Two, because Moses broke the first ones and he had to give them the second time. Anybody ever do weird little things, tricks like that in your mind to remember? Anyway, Exodus 20, Ten Commandments. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, was he talking about little wooden statues and carved rocks? No. He was talking about the gods and the kings that those Hittites and Jebusites, not Jebusites, but the you know, uh, Philistines and Amorites and... Uh, the sons of Anak and all those, all those cultures worship their gods and king. And what were those gods and kings? They weren't wooden statues. They were actual beings that existed that demanded to be worshipped or you lose your life. Those cultures were still worshipping those spirits that were involved in their lives. You see that? that that's why we have to know about this whole Nephilim and fallen angel thing because you really get an understanding for what God was trying to do in the life. See, because we think, well, if I watch too much TV, it becomes an idol in my life. If I, if I get too connected to my phone, then it becomes an idol in my life. That's cute. That preaches well. But that's not what God was talking about. God wasn't talking about an idol being something that you put in front of Him that you spend more time on it than you do him. 
He was talking about the worship of demon gods. You ever worship demon gods in your life? Then you might need warnings of idols. <laughs> Y'all should see your faces. <laughs> You're either thinking, what is he talking about? Or, I don't know. I don't want to judge you. It's different. It's interesting to me. And, and, and the point that I make, why do I make a big deal about that? Because we have to be careful what we let our beliefs be shaped by. You know, I don't want you to be afraid of demons. We're going to get you to a place where you see them from the finished work. All right, so you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image. Now, yes, he addresses carved image, but what is it? Any likeness of anything that is in heaven above. See that? It's not the statue. It's the statue is the likeness of uh, or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Remember the fallen angels that were uh, chained in Tartarus? That's what he's talking about. He's talking about these corrupt, evil spirits that rebelled against God, that desired to rule over mankind, um, making depictions of them is what he's talking about. He says, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them, not the statue, but the, the thing that the statue represents, the evil spirit. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting, now, generational curse, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations to those who hate me. But, say but, but. showing mercy to thousands of generations, to those who love and keep my commandments. So, where did a generational curse idea come from? It came from God. Why did he instate it? Because people were worshiping demon gods and hating God. But what did God desire? God desires that you love him and keep his commandments. And if you love him, this is old covenant, if you love him and keep his commandments, there's blessing for you. Right? Where did a generational curse come from? God instituted it on the Hebrews to warn them against worshiping demons. So, let's keep going. Exodus 34, 7. Keeping steadfast love for thousands of generations, forgiving, this is God, what God desires now, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Again, generational curse. Numbers 14, 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation. So a generational curse was enforced by God for the sin of idolatry, and all the dark spiritual issues that came along with worshiping false gods and demons. A generational curse was not something that a demon enforced in their lives. God enforced it. If you go, now again, every belief that you have about God must be contextualized in God's Word. In other words, if I believe it, then the Word's got to tell me it, and I'll believe what the Word says about it. Not one place in Scripture is there any reference to a generational curse 
being the power of a demon spirit enforcing something in your life. There is what's called strongholds, and the stronghold gets mixed with the idea of a generational curse, but a stronghold is actually a lie that you believe that is reinforced by a demonic strategy. So remember, how do you cast down strongholds? Let's just go back and look at that. You cast down strongholds by bringing every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. The stronghold is the thought, the lie. Not ever, even under the old covenant, one time did a demon have the authority to enforce a curse in the life of anybody. So, is your family cursed because you have Freemasonry in your bloodline? No. Now, that kind of behavior does attract demons because a lot of it, again, you know, I get Masons mad at me, but there are secret societies. Sometimes there's parts of secret societies that have factioned off and they're not all like that, but there are some sections of them that are like that, not even just Masons. I'm picking on the Masons, but for some reason, every time I hear about generational curses, I start hearing people go after Masonic bloodlines. I, it just, it's like it's, it's, it's interesting to me. But I, but I see a lot of the expression of the gifts of the Spirit in the charismatic church is still attached to Old Covenant mindsets, but even a step off from the truth in the Old Covenant. Are you with me? Why am I, bringing, why am I making such a big deal about this? Because the enemy has no power other than your willingness to believe the lies. There's no legal precedent. There's no legal attachment to your life because somebody in your family did something that you have no control over. Even you, even you continue to engage in a repetitive sinful lifestyle does not give the devil the right to curse you. It just prepares your heart to be more receptive to the destruction they're trying to bring into your life. How? Do you war against the enemy? There's, I think there's a couple of key things. Know the word. Know your identity in him. Keep your conscience clear. Your conscience being clear is the result of you living a particular way. And I'm not trying to say that your behavior qualifies you to be protected. You are protected, but your thoughts and the way that you live your life will condition the inner state of your inner man, which is the the determining factor of whether or not you'll let yourself be deceived. You see that? Let's go back down here because I've got some good news for you. The generational curse was enforced by God for the sin of idolatry. How should we see even that now? The, the generational curse that was conceived and enforced by God for the sin of idolatry, how should we see that now? Galatians 3.10. Now take a deep breath, smile, get ready. You're about to be happy. Galatians 3.10. For as many as are the works of the law and under the curse, there were lots of curses under the law. The generational curse for the sin of idolatry was one of them. But we're talking about the whole of the curse of the law that would bring upon you for breaking God's law. 
For it is written, uh, written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things which are written in the book of the law to do them, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. It's like it is clear you can't keep it on your own. For the just shall live by faith, yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Let's read it together. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. Now, should you continue in sin? No. No. Why? Because it'll kill you. But breaking the law does no longer enforce a curse in your life. Now, should you continue in sin? If you do, God is not going to judge you because He's already judged Christ for your sin. Now, should you continue in sin? It's getting softer. (laughs) Because you preach this boldly, people hear, oh, well, it sounds kind of like you're saying that sin's not a big deal, we should just continue. No, I just want to frame everything that we believe through the finished work of Christ. You are delivered from the curse of the law. Even if you bowed down and worshiped Satan, as soon as you come to your right mind and turn back to God, he's not waiting to judge you. He's not waiting to enforce a curse on you. Now, you might play around with the enemy and allow the enemy to wreak havoc and destruction in your life, but God's sitting there going, come back to me. Please, come back to me. I I have already dealt with this in Christ. You don't know, but there's a way to live with me where you don't have to play around in this anymore. Used to be I'd have to kill you because I needed to protect mankind. But now, through Christ, I've dealt with all that stuff. Now I get to be who I really am, who I want to be, as expressed through what Christ accomplished. Amen? Christ has redeemed us from the curse. It just gets better having become a curse for us. On that cross, it was as... I'm on... Hear me. On that cross, it was as if Jesus worshipped Satan and then was judged for that sin. Now, he didn't, obviously, but it was as if he did because God made him to become sin so that... He could punish that sin in the body of the sinner. But he did an amazing thing in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. He took the sin of the entire world and put it into Jesus. So that when he dealt with it, he dealt with it once and for all. I mean, that might be pretty radical, but it's true. So why are there repetitive behaviors? Why is it that if someone struggles, and and I don't mean to make light of these things. I want to kind of just be real life here for a minute. Somebody that struggles with alcoholism, spousal abuse, and even darker things that may be demonic related, why are those habits repeated? Is it because your family line is cursed and you can't do anything about it and you're just going to repeat it until it's broken? 
You know, what we, we think that's a big thing that what we're supposed to do in, in deliverance ministry is break curses. Well, Jesus broke the curse. You live in Him, the curse is broken. And the curse is not even activated anymore because God dealt with it. God's not sitting there cursing lost and not cursing the redeemed. He cursed Christ, in, punished it in Christ for everybody. I got this thing here. Can you give me like three more minutes? I'm going to do it anyway. Just so you know. If you got to go, I love you. But let me just, you know, so I like to kind of burst the bubble of mystical hyper-charismania. And, I, and a lot of times I like to do that through science. Now, science doesn't explain away. I mean, we've just talked about demons a lot about them. So I'm not looking to science to try to put God in a box and explain away legit spiritual phenomenon. But I do want to give you a little bit of insight. There's this idea of what's called, not just an idea, but it's an actual field of study now. Epigenetics, anybody heard of epigenetics? You're about to hear a little bit about it. I'm not a scientist. I'm not even going to promise you that I'm going to say this exactly right. I did copy some of these statements out of an a, a, a article, a medical article that discussed epigenetics. Why am I talking about it? There's a, so uh, genetics versus epigenetics, let me just show you. Genetics determine gender, eye color, body type, right? Like it's encoded in your genes, just physical traits about you. Epigenetics can influence lifestyle. What does that mean? Now, this, this I copied from a, an article. The first two slides and then the second slide I kind of modified so it makes sense to me. Epigenetics is the study of how your behaviors and environment can cause changes that affect the way your genes work. So in other words, genetics is the study of how your genes work. Epigenetics is how things that are in your environment and behavior affect how genes work. Uh, so unlike genetic changes, epigenetic changes are reversible. Yay. Yay. Amen. And do not change your DNA sequence, but they can change how your body reads a DNA sequence. There might be a genetic propensity in your family to certain kinds of disease or alcoholism or abuse because that, those types of behaviors uh, cause your body to build itself in such a way where maybe you have a liver issue and people that have liver issues tend toward anger. You know, that's why a lot of alcoholics are, are angry people because a damaged liver expresses the emotions of anger. I don't know if, I don't know if you knew that, but let's keep going. Uh, again, scientific, scientific study, epigenetics is the study of heritable changes in gene expression, not the genes, active versus inactive genes. I'll make this make sense here in a second. That do not involve changes to the underlying DNA sequence. In other words, a change in phenotype without a change in genotype, which in turn affects how cells read the genes. Now that just cleared everything up for you, didn't it? Several lifestyle factors have been identified that might modify epigenetic patterns. Now, in other words, now let's say your family eats a certain way. Let me, let me just read. Uh, might modify epigenetic, epigenetic patterns such as diet, obesity, physical activity, tobacco smoking, 
alcohol consumption, environmental pollutants, psychological stress, and working on night shifts. In other words, habits in your family related to all these kinds of behaviors program within your genetic material how it affects your body. Really, when you get down to what people that study this isolate it to is there is an energetic to beliefs. And the beliefs that we adopt related to our lifestyles about who we are is now being shown to be passed down to you like your genetics are passed down to you, but they're passed down to you culturally, but there is some type of programming element to it. In other words, the way that your parents think is passed down to you energetically, but it's reversible. Yes. Your parents and your ancestral habits, even if it's worshiping demonic gods, the ideas and the self-perceptions and the attitudes, a big one is attitude, attitudes somehow are, are now, they're recognizing, are energetically in your body passed down to you. Now, the good news is it's not as permanent as eye color because as soon as you adopt a different belief about yourself, which is what they're showing and how to, how to deal with some of these these struggles, you know, so like some treatment centers that are dealing with substance abuse and alcoholism, they're working with this science and they're doing brain scans on people that struggle with these things and they're helping them work through issues that their parents and their grandparents had and they're seeing this energetic, in other words, how your brain works, it shifts and starts to work a different way and then behaviors change. Now, the brain scan only reflects the fact that a deeper thing has happened. A belief has changed. We're passing down our beliefs energetically to our kids. We're affecting the world around us energetically with our beliefs. I'm not trying to get into woo-woo stuff here. I'm just saying this, this is science stuff that's being discovered today. Why? why? Because not everything's a demon. Contrary to some heavily focused deliverance ministry protocols. You ever been involved with the deliverance ministry that every behavior is associated with a specific demon and every disease is also associated with a specific demon? Well, you go poking around in destructive, sinful behavior and disease, guess what you're going to find? Probably some demonic influence. You know, to me, it's kind of like there's a story of this child young child, and he likes to, they live, he lives near his grandfather, and they live near a fire station. And they have a habit that when they hear the fire station sirens, the grandfather will pick up the son because he loved firemen, and they would go and watch the firemen put the fire out. And one day, after doing this multiple times, the child says to the grandfather, Granddaddy, why do these firemen keep setting these fires? <laughs> we do that to God. It's like we get in a difficulty and we find God in the midst of it. We attribute it to Him. He didn't do it. He's not setting the fire. You go searching around for demonic activity related to sin habit, guess what? You're probably going to find a demon. 
but you deal with the beliefs. You deal with the identity. You deal with the assurity of the word in the heart of that person. You want to get people set free and yourself set free from demonic activity? Help them know the word. Help them know who they are in Christ. Help them know the authority. And then that demonic stuff just loses its power in their life. It loses its substance in their life. And then you're like Jesus. The enemy comes and he's got nothing in me. Not everything is a demon. You don't have to start binding and tying up demons and chasing every little thing that's behind a bush. The way your parents and their parents think responded and responded to stress, celebrate birthdays, work, sin, sleep, are factors that install epigenetic programming. This data, to me, demystifies the need to call every generational sin a curse. Under the old covenant, I'm almost done, under the old covenant, you were cursed and punished for breaking the law or you were blessed for keeping God's commandments. Under the new covenant, Christ bore all, say all, of your punishment for breaking God's law. Remember, set you free from the curse of the law and fulfilled the law for you. So remember all the blessings that were available if you kept the law? Christ kept the law for you. You are in Him. So therefore, you are qualified for all of the blessings and promises and none of the curses in Christ. Now, we're just talking about legal matters. We're not talking about fluffy theology. We're not talking about feel-good Christianity that doesn't challenge sin. Are you hearing me? I'm telling you that the religious community struggles with accepting the finished work of Christ when you break it down to these kinds of areas. Because they hear either permissiveness or mishandling the Word of God in some way. We need to change that. I think that's one of the things that God's called this body to do is know the Word, know our identity, know what Jesus accomplished in His finished work, know the gospel better than you know anything, for it is the power of God unto salvation, and don't be ashamed of it. Take every opportunity you can to help people understand the gospel. When it comes time, when it comes time to pray for somebody, to help them experience something that Jesus paid for, don't question, what well, does God really want this for them? You don't know. You haven't spent time sitting in a communal participatory experience of what Jesus suffered for you and owned it and personalized it. If you can sit and meditate on what Jesus went through on the cross for you, man, I'm telling you, it, it, it makes you want to live holy. It makes you want to live in a way where you don't corrupt your own heart toward God or harden your heart or entertain sin. You don't want to stay. You don't want that stuff in your life when you really know what He did for you. You want to help people get set free from destructive patterns in their lives? Tell them about who they are in Christ. Tell them about how much God loves them. Tell them about what Jesus did for them. Because when you set people free from guilt and condemnation, then they can actually open their heart and go to God for help rather than expecting God to make their life challenging and difficult. Because that's not His mode of operation. Amen? Let's stand up on our feet. And I got this confession that I want to make. I want us to make it together. And, and I would encourage you that when you are seeking to believe God 
in a specific area of your life that you go to the Word and you pull out some spiritual, you pull out some truths, you write them down, and you make them confessions in your life. In other words, you make them prayers, really. It's just a prayer, but you're praying the truth over yourself. So let's just read this together. I am delivered from the power of darkness. I am qualified for all of the blessings and promises of God. The Spirit of God protects me, and the enemy flees from me. One more time. I am delivered from the power of darkness. I am qualified for all the blessings and promises of God. The Spirit of God protects me, and the enemy flees from me. Amen? Amen. Amen. Now, if for you to adopt that phrase and it sit well with your conscience, you might need to add, I am qualified for all the blessings and promises of God because Christ earned them for me. You know what I mean? Like if, like if you have trouble with just making that first person statement and you need to adapt it so, it so that it settles well with your heart. Are you with me? I'm just trying to get down into the nuts and bolts of how you believe the truth and shape new beliefs and renew your mind because you will experience transformation when you do. You do these kinds of things and you say it and you mean it. Say the truth, speak the truth, feel the truth because it is already true of you. And as you put it on in your mind, it becomes your truth and then it shapes your behavior. Just like genetics is driving things out of your control in your life and this epigenetic content material is shaping attitudes in your life, you can change that stuff. You can change your attitudes. You can change your sin habits. You can change how you respond to stress. You can change how you respond to what's going on in the world. You can change how you respond to your spouse or your children or your parents or the government or the news. You can change how you respond to life when you stand firm in who you are. Now, then if you start to feel the pressure and inside you start to feel wavering or you see habits in your life that don't reflect who you are in Christ, you get something like this crafted from the Word of God and you it's like medicine, right? You take a pill, you, take a, you got a headache, you take a pill. You got this, you take a pill, whatever it is. This is the truth that you're shaping your mind with and because it's already true, so you're not trying to get God to do something you're just trying to experience what he's already done. Most of Christianity is that now. We're trying to believe so that we can live within what he's already given us in Christ. Amen? Y'all want to read it one more time? I am delivered from the power of darkness. I am qualified for all the blessings and promises of God. The Spirit of God protects me and the enemy flees from me. Amen? Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together to take your word. But I thank you that, uh, that you give us revelation and insight of how to see it, how to trust you, how to live under the influence of grace, which teaches us to live godly, how to live, under the, live within our authority to represent you in this earth, to go about just as Jesus did, doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the enemy. Father, we thank you that we are delivered from the power of darkness in you. We thank you that Jesus was cursed for us so that we can just take a deep breath knowing that we're accepted by you, Father, because of what Christ did. Now we want to live under the power of your grace in a way that is honoring and respectful of what you've done. We don't want to take this as an opportunity to just live recklessly and sinfully. 
We want to be mature Christians living worthy of what you've given us, representing you in this earth, Father. We yield our hearts and our minds to you. We commit to shaping every belief with the Word of God, and we will follow you. Amen.